and then beliefs about the future is really what shapes our present reality, doesn't it? Like, for example, think of something like Manifest Destiny that, that captured the United States in, in the mid-1800s. Manifest Destiny was this idea that we were destined as Americans, and many believe we were destined by God, to spread our country from sea to shining sea. And in so doing, we, we not only spread people, but we spread ideas, we spread democracy, we spread capitalism uh, in Manifest Destiny. And I think there were really virtuous, good things that came from that. One being Texas might not even be part of the United States without Manifest Destiny. But other states like, you know, Iowa and then Colorado and Montana, these places, as people moved there, they had this unified vision of what we're, we're going to do here, what democracy looks like. We're going to break up into little counties, and we're going to uh, vote for governors and senators, and we're going to establish these things. And, but, but even deeper than that, Manifest Destiny had this idea uh, of, of expansion, of growth, this, this entrepreneurial ethos that just continues into today. That we can take on these uh, new frontiers, be it space or technology. All of that is kind of in the warp and the woof of what it means to be an American. And our memories of the past, that, that really grounds that, that vision that we have for the future. And thus, it kind of shapes the present. However, if you're of the Lakota people or the Sioux people, manifest destiny isn't just a great thing. Like that's the moment that, that spurred all the Indian wars that, that still impact Native Americans today. That, that vision that they had for the future of their people, that vision is never going to come about because of manifest destiny. So these visions that we have of the future, these, these memories that we have of the past, virtuous things can come from them, but, but also painful things and, and, and dangerous things can come from them. But again, memories of the past, and beliefs about the future, that's really what shapes our present lives. So as Christians, how do we remember the past? Like, uh, what are our beliefs also about the future? How, how, how does our past and our future, how does that shape our, our present lives? Hebrews 10, this final section, 32 to 39, it's really about linking the, the past and the future, linking those two things with the present. How do those things inform or, or shape our present reality? Now, if, if you haven't been with us over these last few weeks, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at these imperatives from Hebrews 10, these, these clear teachings from God's Word of, of things that we're supposed to do. We, we looked at three to four of them, depending on how you classify them. The, these imperatives of draw near, to hold fast, to stir up, to gather together. And then last week, we saw this clear warning based upon those. That if you don't live your life that way, if you don't believe those things to the degree that you live your life that way, that, that he says in verse 26 that there is no longer there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now, friends, that's supposed to be terrifying. Like what he's saying there, and, and maybe theological language or, or a theological concept, he's saying that if you don't believe that stuff, then you're not a Christian. Jesus' sacrifice doesn't cover over your sins. And if Jesus' sacrifice doesn't cover over your sins, you're not on your way to heaven. So he's saying that, that theologically in this broad sense, if you've rejected the gospel, but also I think what he, what he was saying in the previous section is, is that functionally, if you reject those imperatives, like you don't live your life that way, that your life isn't marked by drawing near, holding fast, stirring up, gathering together, 
that he says in verse uh, 29 that in essence you've trampled underfoot the Son of God and that you've profaned the blood of the covenant. And as a result, you're going to face judgment. And he says in verse 27, uh, a, a fury of fire. That's, that's his promise for you if you reject the gospel and you reject it to the degree of not living according to those appearances. However, ultimately, the author of Hebrews doesn't believe uh, he doesn't believe that falling away and, and judgment, that that's the future for the readers of this letter. He doesn't think that that's their future. He gives them a real and a stern and a direct warning, but he doesn't think that that's going to be their path. But to get there, he's going to remind them of their past. He's going to speak a bit about their future, and then he's going to highlight how that's supposed to shape their present. So the first admonition here is to remember your former days. Look with me at verses 32 to 34. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those who, who so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully, joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Friends, we all need to remember. We need to remember our former days. And we need to remember all that in a, in a certain way. One of the healthiest things that I, that I think young people and young Christians can do is to befriend older Christians. It is to get to know people who've walked with Jesus maybe for decades. And in fact, I think that that's a mark of a healthy church. If a church is just a bunch of 20-year-olds... Newsflash, it's not going to be like a mature church, right? <laughs> but like, and, and frankly, sometimes in churches, if you're an empty nester, if you're an older Christian, you might think, well, the church doesn't have any use for, for me anymore. Friends, that's not the case in our church. Like, if you've got some gray hair, we need you around. And specifically, we need you to remember, and we need you to remember with us. So if you have gray hair and decades of walking with Jesus, we need you to remember all the ways that God has been faithful to you. We need you to go back to those moments, and we need you to share those with us. We need to hear those stories. We need to learn from you in the ways that God has been faithful, the way that he's been faithful to help you endure through all the ups and downs of life, of all the trials. We need to hear those stories about when your wife or your husband passed away, and then God carried you through that season. We need, to, we need you to tell those stories when you lost your business. But God was, was good in that and, and how he carried you through that hard season, how, how he was faithful and walked with you. We, we, need, to, we need your stories and we need you to remember. But, but young guys, if, uh, I encourage you, you need to then reach out and know older Christians in our church. You need to build relationships with them. You need to ask them to lunch. You need to talk to them in small group. You, you need to literally walk up to somebody and say, hey, I'm Joe Bob. What's your name? And I'd love to know you. And, and, and get to know people in this church because you need to hear their stories. We need to remember. But notice what he's calling them to remember. Specifically, he's calling them to remember their conversion. Now, now the term he uses for their conversion is enlightenment. You see, when, when someone is converted, verse 32, they're enlightened. It's like the lights are turned on. It's like that they were in the dark, they didn't know where to go, and all of a sudden they could see. This thing that they used to be very apathetic about, or this thing maybe they hated, all of a sudden they love now. 
Well, they, they want to die, but in God's word, they, 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 they want to do these certain things. The, the lights have been turned on. They, they've been enlightened, and they've, and they've seen it for the truth that it is. But we need to remember those moments. We need to ponder those things. We need to see them as good, and we need to think about those things. But we need to remember those incidents. You were blind, and God gave you sight. Do you remember? And further, the fact that God enabled you to see, he also gave you then the ability to endure you need to remember that enlightenment when the lights all came on and the effects of that, which were helping you endure, helping you to carry on, helping you to walk faithful in, in the face of all this persecution or all this suffering. See, endurance is the great virtue. You're not falling away. Remaining faithful, enduring, that's what he's calling us to. That's the great virtue. For example, God's not promising that you're never going to get cancer. He's not promising that your business is not going to fail. He's not going to promise you that maybe one of your, your children, maybe all your children are going to struggle in different ways. However, he is saying that he turned on the lights so that you could see the glories of the gospel in order for you to endure through your struggles. In other words, life doesn't have to break you. These waves are going to come. Cancer's coming. Failure's coming. Struggle's coming. But endurance is so glorious as a result. You see, your soul can survive through all of that. Those things don't have to break you. Verses 33 and 34, it outlines the specifics of the struggles that they were dealing through, these different sufferings they were having to endure. First, they were vilified publicly. Second, they were able to display compassion towards the suffering. There were people who were suffering around them, and they were able to step into that, which was difficult. And third, their property was plundered. Literally, for being a Christian, their property was stolen from them. Can those things happen to us today? Verse 33 explains that they were vilified because of their faith. People publicly exposed them as Christians, and as a result of that, they then abused them for it. That they were abused in some form or fashion because of their commitment to Christ. It, it, it's true that there's been times in history where Christianity has kind of been the, the dominant cultural force in a society, right? There's been these moments where, where Christianity is that force. I think today is not one of those moments. And I'll speak to that in a moment. But, but whoever is in the maybe the, the dominant cultural seat, if you will, they're, they're the ones who I think probably justly get blamed for the problems in society, right? So we can look back at, at our history and maybe you can... You know, you can look back at all these, you know, wonderful memories of the 1950s, except if you're an African-American living in the South, it just wasn't that great. You know, we can look back at all these moments and say they're great, but in reality, if Christianity was this dominant cultural force, whatever injustices follow, whatever Christianity didn't bring uh, the light of the gospel to, then Christianity's in the dark. However, is that the moment that we're in? You see, many look at history through this lens of oppressor and oppressed. That there's the ones who are in power, then they oppress everybody else. And then if you're the oppressed, you need to flip it and become the one who's in power. Then there's the hegemony. They're the ones who are in power. Christianity is that. And so we need to push off Christianity because Christianity is this problem, this, this oppressing force in our nation. Friends, maybe there, there was a moment where that was, but, but that's not today. Look like if, and, and here we are, and I know there's even exceptions in this room to this. But the reality of it is, is, you know, the, the cultural forces in our society, be it academia or media or corporations, 
they don't view Christianity as this moral good. And, and frankly, most of them probably don't look at Christianity as, as morally neutral. Our society is viewing Christianity as a moral negative. And as a result of that, vilification is coming. Now, let me be clear about something. I don't think Christians are oppressed or persecuted today. In the sense that I, I can't find a law that says, if you're a Christian, let's go take the property. Or if you're a Christian, let's throw them in jail. So, so we can hyperventilate about some of these things. However, let's, let's also be honest. You work at a university, you work at a big corporation, you know you've got to navigate certain things a certain way, right? Listen, what that means is, is vilification is coming. But what that means is, is for the next generation of Christians, it's going to require intelligence and it's going to require courage that Christians in the past in this country did not really have. But here's the question that I have for you. Can, can you navigate that? Can you hold fast, draw near like the Christians of the past have done? That's what I think it's going to require. But, but, but notice the nature of how they navigate. Look back at your passage. Their, their property was plundered. Their property was stolen as a result of Christ. But notice the nature of their heart in that moment. They joyed in that moment. They, they found joy in those moments. Their joy remained intact, even though they were vilified and oppressed. In other words, they loved the gospel more than they loved their money. They had the ability to remain joyful, even though they were vilified. Friends, they had hope even in those struggles, even those, in those societal family pressures that they were feeling. They didn't lose their hope in those moments. They didn't lose their joy in those moments. They had joy maybe even because of it. Now hear me, when I say I think it's going to be harder for younger Christians to make their way in this country than our generations, I'm not panicked about that at all. Because when I look at this, I see that those, uh, those kids have an opportunity to remain faithful and to maybe even experience joy that we have not experienced because of the faithfulness that they're going to have to embrace. Are you able to joy in suffering? Are you able to joy in struggles? Are you able to joy even in vilification or oppression? Remember your former days. Tell the story of when God turned on the lights for you. Share with this next generation how your joy has remained intact through all the ups and downs, through all the struggles, through all the suffering. But why? Where does all that lead? What's the benefit of enduring? Well, he says, therefore, don't throw away your confidence in verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. So when you remember God's good grace, when you remember that enlightenment, when you remember to the degree that you endure, it leads to a, to a confidence. That there's a, an assuredness that you have. If God has graciously turned on the lights, and then he's carried you through sufferings, he's, he's carried you through all these hard things, then he commands you, don't throw that away. And the reason why you don't throw that away is because that confidence leads to a great reward. Now, in some sense, the confidence itself is a great reward. You have this thing that stands firm no matter what the world does around you. You have to remain sure and strong. But you also, there's this reward that's coming when you are confident. It leads to a reward. Let me read Romans 5, 1 to 5 to paint this picture a little bit better. Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by, access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope for the glory of God. 
Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Now, listen to this. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which He has given to us. So when God comes in and enlightens, graciously turns on the lights for you, then, then you're able to endure and navigate those difficult days. You, you can have this great reward of this confidence. That confidence leads to hope. That you, that you know good things are coming, no matter the bad that you're, that, that you're weathering in that moment. You can even face uh, you can even face down death with joy in those moments. Amen? But we have this thing that the world cannot touch. Friends, don't throw that away because somebody doesn't like your politics. Like, don't throw that away. Don't, don't give up that, that eternal joy, that eternal confidence because someone disagrees with your views on social media. Don't toss aside joyous, eternal hope because you aren't going to be able to answer all the questions that somebody fires at you. Or there's this complex, hard doctrine about God that, that you can't you know, answer every angle of. Don't, don't throw away your confidence in that. Remain assured. Remain steadfast. Endure. Friends, in the face of vilification, we don't need to fall away. We need to endure. And we need to, we need to remain faithful. And he gives us you know, one qualifier here. Because you need endurance. Then the next verse in verse 36 talks about your need of endurance. For, for you have need of endurance. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. So in the face of vilification, in the face of suffering, if we throw away our confidence in the gospel, if we abandon all of this, then we're not going to endure. And what that means is we're not going to experience and receive this promised reward that's coming. Friends, you need to endure in order to receive what is promised. James says it this way in James 1. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. But when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. This crown of life hangs in the balance if you're not enduring. He calls you to endure in order to experience abundant life here as well as abundant life in the hereafter. And that's, that, that is gained. That reward is gained. That promise is fulfilled when you endure. J Jesus said it this way. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is this glorious rule and reign of God. The, the way things ought to be. Things working as they should. And we get to experience that when we have endured through persecution. When we have endured through hard things. So when we're, well, we maybe get taste of that kingdom here. But we're going to get feast of it in the hereafter. But we're going to get to feast on the kingdom of God for eternity. Those who endure. Those who, uh, those who faithfully endure, they get to enjoy all the blessings, all the rewards that are to come. Don't throw away your confidence in the gospel in the face of any form of struggle or suffering because you need to faithfully endure in order to receive the promise. He now is going to give us one more reason to endure. One more reason to endure beyond that. It's because uh, in verse 37 and 38, because he is returning. And the righteous live by faith, and they don't shrink back. Look, look at these two quotes in verses 37 and 38. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, 
My soul has no pleasure in him. What the author of Hebrews is doing here is he's quoting a couple of verses, Isaiah 26 and Habakkuk 2. And what he's trying to do is just give us one more reason to endure. So we're not supposed to throw away our confidence. We're, we're to endure because Jesus is returning. Jesus is returning, and as a result, we should endure. And you might say, well, who, who cares? What does what Jesus returning have to do with me enduring? Well, what he's saying here is, is if uh, you don't endure, if you don't navigate these sufferings and, and these trials, when he comes, he's going to judge you. And when he comes, if he judges you as, as having lived righteous by faith and then having not shrunk away, then you're going to experience all the rewards. We've done this and noted this a couple of times in the book of Hebrews. But when the author of Hebrews quotes from the Old Testament, he's quoting from a Greek translation of the Hebrew text. And, and what he does many times is he'll, he'll take a term, and, and every term in any language has kind of a range of meanings. And he kind of highlights on, on one aspect of the range of that meaning of the term. And so what he's doing here is when, when he says, okay, the righteous shall live by faith, he's emphasizing the return of the Messiah. He's trying to say, okay, listen, the Messiah is going to return, and so are you living faithfully in the here and now? Okay? Now, Paul quotes these passages a couple of times. He quotes it in Romans 1 and then in Galatians 3. He says the same phrase, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, when Paul quotes it, he's doing something a little bit different. He, he's looking at that verse. He's looking backwards at your salvation. He's looking backwards at your conversion. And what Paul is saying when he quotes that in those two places, he's saying that, listen, the, the righteous shall live by faith. And he's highlighting that, that listen, uh, the, the righteousness is faithfulness. The, the word to live by faith, that's, that's the thing that God calls us to. We're not to trust in our own self. We're to trust in what Jesus has done on the cross for us. And, and as a result of that, we gain this righteousness. So when we're converted, we're in this class of righteous. Now, if you know yourself very well, you know you're really not righteous, right? Like when he's talking about righteousness, he's not talking about something in the inside of you. Meaning like you've been going living your life after your conversion never sinning. Like if you think that... We, we need to lock you up or something. Okay? You're, you're living very dishonest. So when people theologically have tried to do that, they get weird with sin, okay? They say a cuss word, and they're oh, that's not really a sin. And it just gets weird fast, okay? So he's not talking about that. And he's not like lowering the righteous standard, saying that, okay, you can be righteous enough to get in there. No, he's talking about a different type of righteousness. He's saying that there's a righteousness outside of you that God places on you. The, the Protestant reformers call this an alien righteousness. There's a righteousness outside of you that comes down as you trust in him, as you trust in what he's done on the cross, then God then grants you a righteousness. He looks at you and doesn't see you and all your sin. He sees Jesus and his good work, and he declares you righteous. Amen? This is why we have the Protestant Reformation. This is the central difference between Catholics and Protestants. It's in what we do with a verse like that. We think we have this alien righteousness. We don't conjure it up. It's on the side of us. God blesses us with it. That's what Paul's doing with that text. And the author of Hebrews is doing something different. He's taking that text, and he's taking a different angle. He's trying to, to look forward with that text. And he's trying to say, you have this hopeful look. Based upon this nature of faith, we can look forward with confidence. Jesus is returning. He's going to give a reward to, for those who endure of living by faith, who don't shrink away. And if you live by faith in Him, then, then you're going to experience these rewards that He's promising. He's going to come back. And if, and if you live uh, according to Him, if, if you are faithful to Him, not faithful to your own self, but faithful to Him, then you're going to experience those rewards. That's the 
the warning, if you will, uh, of this passage. But he lands the plane, I think, in a really amazing place. But look at me at verse 39. All that's true, but be encouraged that you will endure and live by faith. You, you won't shrink back, verse 39. Verse 39 says, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and, and uh, preserve their souls. What a glorious fitting to Hebrews 10, right? Like 30, 37, 38, that's not the good news. 39 is the good news. Everything else up to this point, this is this weighty, heavy warning. Draw near, hold fast. If you don't, he's coming. There's a day of the Lord coming. Run scared. You know, he's questioning all this. If you reject all this, the, the, the blood of the sacrifice doesn't cover you. Be warned. But then he lands in a different place. He says, be encouraged. He says, be encouraged because you will endure. How does, how does he know that? But like he says, listen, some people are going to shrink back. Some people are going to be destroyed. However, he, these, he wrote this letter, and to the original readers, he did not believe that that was their faith. He didn't believe that that was their destiny. And to be frank, I don't believe that's your destiny either. Like, listen, this passage is a real warning, isn't it? And I think we need to take it as a warning. And I think there's an aspect of the Christian life that we should have this healthy tinge of fear. Like, there's a, there's a very real aspect of your spirituality that you should fear God. And, and listen, we need to stay sharp. We need to, we need to fight when those temptations come. We need to stand firm when opposition rages against us. But we also need to be encouraged. We need to be encouraged because we're not of the sort. We're not of the class of people who are going to shrink back and be destroyed. We're of the sort. We're the class of people who are going to endure. But why? But, like, why was he so confident in this chapter in that way? Why, why maybe am I so confident that that applies to you? It's not because the author of Hebrews thought that they were awesome. And it's not because I think you're awesome. It's because I think Jesus is awesome. Amen. You with me? The object of your faith is what is, is going to ensure your endurance. First Thessalonians 5, 9 says, For God has not destined us for wrath but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, those who believe in Him, they are destined for salvation. That's your destiny. Now hear me. Fight the spiritual fight until He returns. But be hopeful. Be encouraged. You're of the sort that doesn't shrink back. You're of the sort that remains faithful. You're of the sort that endures. You're the sword that is, is destined, as he said, to obtain salvation. That's your future. Be warned, but be encouraged. This Hebrews 10 warning passage, I think, has been heavy. But that's why I love where he lands here. Just helping us to remember the past, to look to the future, in order to be shaped by the present. But land in this place to be encouraged when you do that. When you reflect upon the gospel, it transforms you. When you get a correct vision of your future, it transforms your present as well. So remember the blessings of the past. Never forget how he enlightened you. 
Continue to ponder those moments when He turned the lights on for you. Reflect on His saving grace and let that be just this source of joy that just pumps life into, into your soul. And it's meant to help you endure. So remember and help others remember. Tell the stories of God's grace. However, also look to the future. But believe in a very serious, real way that He's returning. And when He returns, He's bringing judgment. So that should, that should uh, maybe send a tinge of fear up your spine. But when He comes, He's going to judge. Let that also shape your presence. Fear what will happen if you shrink away or if you uh, give in to that struggle or if you give yourself over to that suffering or that vilification. Fear Him more than anything else in this world and let your fear help you endure. Friend, if you're here today and, and you don't really fear the Lord, like maybe in this ultimate cosmic sense that you say, I don't believe this. I don't believe this. Then don't waste the day, okay? Don't waste the day. There, there's a real God, and He is a just God. And he is returning. Brother, you should fear him. Don't waste today if that's where you are. We're going to do our service a little bit different today. Instead of doing communion right after uh, the, the sermon, we'll do it at the end. But when I'm done speaking, I'm just going to head to the back. And, and some of our elders will be back there. And we just want to pray with you. If, if you're there... Know that we're here for you. We want to be here for you. We want to maybe help you understand. We want to answer any questions you have. And we want to help you get right with Him today. And listen, if you're of this group that, you know, somebody asks you, if you're a Christian, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but none of your life looks like any of this. You run down that list of admonitions and imperatives. Don't, you know, draw near, hold fast, gather together. That, that, doesn't, that doesn't look like your life. Maybe you say you believe, but you don't genuinely, you don't authentically believe. If that's you, the same thing, don't waste today. Take a moment and let's, let's get right with Him today. We would love to just lead you in a prayer to Him, of just giving yourself over to Him, of confessing your sin and believing in Him. And again, when, when I get in there, I'm just going to walk to the back. And we're, we're here for you back there. And when we start singing, we want you just to slip to the back and come visit with us, and we'd love to pray for you. However, those of you who are of the sort that you've experienced that alien righteousness through faith, friends, this call is to endure. Continue on. Fight the fight of faith in the face of every temptation that comes your way. Cling tightly to Him through every disappointment. Fear Him more than any fleeting, shifting opinion of the world. Remember the, the blessings of the past. Fear this future judgment and then allow all that to help you endure in a way right now in the present. But be encouraged. He's not destined you for wrath. He's destined you for reward. This is the great hope of this passage. Hebrews 10 here at the end I think is, is a call to remember our stories and tell our stories. I heard a, a story about a, about a drunk. This a man in our. Uh, the, this man was. Uh, he was very smart. He worked hard. He, he was well liked. He had a successful business by most people's uh, measure. He, he would have been considered well off. He also had some real uh, deep seated demons in battle. He had some real selfish tendencies. All that's kind of a clean way of saying that he was not a good dad. He was not a good husband. And that's 
who this guy was. Now, listen, young people at some level, like going out partying, that's, that's appealing to you when you're young. When you're the middle-aged dad, it, it gets embarrassing quick. And that's where this guy was. And one night, his oldest son was playing in his high school basketball game. And, you know, how those games go, you know, crowds, especially back then, can get pretty rowdy and start really jumping on the ref if they don't like the call. And this guy stumbles into the game, as kind of typically does. He's drunk. And some nights he was just kind of this silly drunk, and everybody kind of rolled their eyes and embarrassed his wife and embarrassed the kids. But, you know, maybe it was sort of harmless. But this night he was, he was like the belligerent drunk, okay? So he rolls in there, and he doesn't like the call, and he just goes berserk. You know, some people are yelling with him, but he just keeps going and going and going. And then, and then he, his son does something he doesn't like out on the court. Man, he just starts laying into his, his, his son from the stands. I mean, it, it, just, it just got embarrassed. It got hard. It got ugly quick. His wife finally got up and just slipped out. And his son, he just, everybody could just see his son, how crushed he was out on the court. And, and eventually, uh, this, this Christian man stepped in and he knew him, and he, he escorted him out. And this Christian dad, he, he drove the guy home to help sleep off his drunkenness, but, but he felt a real conviction that it, it was time for him to, to step in and say something. He, he wanted to really minister the gospel to him. This guy knew the family. He, he knew him. They had done business together. Uh, he had, he'd been a coach for uh, this guy's sons. He had been one of their Sunday school teachers. And, and so later that week, he invited him to lunch. And they, they go and they sit down, and, and they, they respected each other enough. So he, he felt the ability to, to really speak directly and frankly to him. He, he did it with a, with a soft touch. But th this Christian man explained how his drunkenness was impacting his family. In fact, the Christian man's wife had, had kind of heard that this guy's wife was, was seriously pondering divorce and leaving him, hiring a lawyer behind it. And, and so he talked to him about man, just the, the wounds that this was causing, that this sin was causing his children, the, the embarrassment it was causing to him and to his family, and how it was just impacting his voice. That, that Christian also shared God's view of his sin. And he talked about a holy and a righteous and a just God who was going to return and judge this man. But he didn't leave it there. He then talked about the good news of the gospel. He talked about that the reason Jesus came was to die to pay for those sins. So that this guy could move from a category of unrighteous to righteous. So this guy could be totally transformed and walk in newness of life. Now, by God's grace, that man was enlightened. The, the lights came on. He, he believed. He was born again. But let me tell you why I share that story. When I first heard that story, I was shocked. I, I couldn't believe it. I know what, know what that guy? Like, this guy is like one of the sweetest, nicest men in our church. That's his past? Wait a second. Like, like this guy was just one of the old guys in our church, and I loved him. Man, I loved him. He was so kind to me. And when Chris and I left and planted our first church in Austin, he was so faithful to support us every month. And he wouldn't even go a step further. He would, he would always pray for us. He would write us these encouraging notes. I dearly love this man. Wait, that's his story? Every time I saw him, it was just a, I just had a different perspective of it. I just saw this as this glorious story of God's grace. This is what God does to somebody. And this is who he, he can become. And in fact, if you've ever been with me to Sidewalk Cafe, 
I, I periodically see this man at the sidewalk. He, he was one of those old guys that I always go up and say hi to. And he always, he, he loved what was going on here. And every time I'd say, hey, how's Redeemer Church going? Tell me about what's going on. And he just loved hearing stories about you guys. And when I'd be there, he would just take delight seeing me sit in a booth with another guy talking about God and the gospel and, and all those things. He, he just, he loved all of that. That's how God changed him. And listen, when, when he died about a year ago, man, the pictures of his boys with me. God changed him from an awful dad to a great dad. And for decades, he endured that. He sat in that. And those boys and men sung his praises. They loved him for it. He had endured in faithfulness. He, he walked faithfully to the end, and he was truly born again. He was truly transformed. Friends, that's what the gospel does. That's what we are to endure in. And as we remember those, doesn't it bring you joy as you remember God's faithfulness? Doesn't it bring you joy knowing that that's how he transforms you? Doesn't it bring you joy to the degree that it helps you anymore? Dads, don't you want to be that kind of dad at the end versus who he was? That, that's what the endurance brings. His story is like so many in that it warms our souls and it spurs us to endure. God can truly redeem. He can truly persevere. He can truly help you endure. He can bless us with joy. He, even through the plundering of our property. Even in the face of death itself, we can face down death with joy because we have something that this world can never take from us. All of us can so easily forget the blessings of the past and, and not fear the judgment of the future. But Hebrews 10 calls us to read. Remember that grace from the past. Remember the fear of the future so that we can endure in the presence. Amen? Father God, as we close, I pray that if there's anyone in this room that the gospel has not been good news, maybe it's just been something that they feel like they have to do. Maybe it's been something that they feel like that we're supposed to argue against and pick apart. Well, I, I pray that today that they would experience the saving grace in God. That you would enlighten them. That you would turn their lights on. That you would help them see that this is good news. This is better than anything in the world has to offer. We could make a million dollars of energy. We could be in poverty and have this and have well, I pray that as we close and we see, there's someone in here that needs to be right with you today. Needs to be converted. Needs to ask some questions and uh, be prayed over. I pray that as I slip to the back, I pray that they become physical blessed and we can pray. May this be the day that they are born. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.